From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earthbeats. As pigs, we don't really shop from supermarkets. Everyone knows someone who knows someone who comes from a village and has access to olive trees and olive oil. On today's show, we talk with Greek chef and anthropologist Nafsika Papakarlampus. She shares a recipe for Greek comfort food and also talks with me and Olga Kalanzidou about her research into the role of memory and nostalgia in contemporary movements in Greek cuisine. Plus a story from Harvest Public Media about granting rights to a river. That's all coming up this hour. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. A growing legal movement across the globe to grant natural entities like forests and rivers the same legal rights as humans is catching on in the U.S. It includes indigenous-led campaigns to recognize the legal rights of natural entities like wild rice, salmon, and lakes. As Harvest Public Media's Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco with the Ag and Water Desk reports, that's setting the stage for a nascent movement on the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River flows lazily today. Overhead on the Centennial Bridge connecting Illinois and Iowa and the Quad Cities, cars are cruising past and sometimes honking at a long line of environmentalists that say the river is alive. The river have rights just like, every, just like human rights. Our uh, nature have rights and it's up to us to preserve these rights. That's Glenda Guster from Davenport, Iowa. She was among the 80 or so people to join the Great Plains Action Society's Walk for River Rights, the centerpiece of a three-day summit for black and indigenous organizers from across the Mississippi River Basin. According to Sakawa Snobis, the founder of the Indigenous Rights Organization, the goal is to build a river-wide coalition to rethink the legal framework they believe imperils life on and in the Mississippi River. The earth is really suffering and rights of nature would basically give personhood to the river and it would allow us to have more power to keep it safe. The idea is that natural entities like rivers, trees, or wildlife have the same rights as humans and thus have legal standing in a court of law. The implications could be far-reaching. Companies could be taken to court for damaging the river or its ecosystems. That's exactly what happened in Tamaqua, a small town in Pennsylvania. Thomas Lindsay is a senior attorney at the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights and drafted the document to get rights for the small borough. It may be a radical concept, or it was 20 years ago, but we're rapidly coming to a place where without this kind of new system of environmental law that we're all kind of done. Ultimately, locals were able to stop sewage sludge from being dumped in Tamaqua using the new ordinance. He adds that before the rights of nature movement made its way to the mainstream, it was born from the cosmologies of indigenous people that recognized the natural world as made up of living beings, not just resources and commodities. In 2008, Lindsay consulted the Equatorian government while it drafted its new constitution, the first in the world to ratify the rights of nature. In 2021, an Equatorian municipality appealed to those constitutional protections to overturn mining permits that they said violated the rights of nature of the endangered Los Cedros rainforest, and they won. The work has spread to other countries and in the U.S. to about 
over three dozen municipalities at this point. Lance Foster is a member of the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska and a speaker at the Mississippi River Summit. He says that a couple years ago, the success of Rights of Nature in South America got his and other tribes thinking, why not us? And we wondered why hasn't the big rivers, the Missouri River and the Mississippi River, have those rights. He says that his tribe and others have created a resolution for the rights of the Missouri River. They hope to use it to fight industrial scale agriculture and deep mining operations. Two years ago in Minnesota, the White Earth Band of Ojibwe brought a suit against the Enbridge Corporation's Line 3 on behalf of the Manumen, or wild rice, and its right to exist and grow. And just a couple weeks ago, the city of Seattle settled a case with the Sauk-Suiattle Indian tribe over the claim that salmon had the right to spawn, among other rights. Foster says if corporations get legal rights in the U.S., why shouldn't rivers? After all, they were here far before humans. Now, will we take that chance as a society? I'm dubious most days, but we have to keep trying. We have to keep going to the bitter end. States like Idaho, Florida, and Ohio have moved to preemptively ban the possibility that nature or ecosystems can have legal standing. Even so, Foster says the rights of nature isn't as unthinkable as it once was. After all, children, women, black, and indigenous people were once denied rights too. What's stopping the river? In the Quad Cities, I'm Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. And it's not because it's a high-demanding recipe. It's because the more you care for the food, the better it will taste afterwards. On today's show, we have a special guest, Dr. Nafsika Papakar Lampos. She's a food anthropologist and chef affiliated with the SOAS Food Studies Center at University of London. Her work centers on food identity and memory, especially during the Greek financial crisis starting in 2009. She visited the campus of Indiana University as part of the Themester on Identity and Identification. Geography professor Olga Kalanzidou, who we've had on the show previously, brought her to campus also as a guest for her class on Greek cuisine. Olga organized a cooking demonstration in partnership with the Institute for European Studies, IU Department of Geography, IU Department of Anthropology, and the College of Arts and Sciences Themester. Here's Nafsika. In the demo, I had in mind to cook more traditional Greek recipes. And fava, which is the yellow split pea dip, is one of my favorites because it's also quite comforting and links to childhood memories. And it's something that most Greeks share. The second recipe, the suzukakia, is actually a recipe from Smyrna. And it gave me the opportunity to talk about Turkish cuisine and Greek cuisine and the exchanges of populations historically and how the, the development of Greek cuisine is influenced by people moving, spices being brought in, recipes and, and all of that. While Nafsika shared two recipes today, we'll just be talking about the yellow split pea dish. Let's go right into the cooking demonstration for the fava, and then we'll come back to our quieter studio conversation with Olga and Nafsika. The demo took place in the Reed Teaching Kitchen with assistance from IU Dining's Rahul Srivastav and executive chef Dave Talent. It's a space with a lot of echo, so bear with us. We call it fava, but as I learned today, it's not what you call fava here. So it's uh, split yellow peas, that you rinse and we turn them into a dip. 
This is not served in Greece as a main course, uh, like you would with dal, for example. It's served as a starter, as part of meze in the tavernas. And I'm going to make it with two different topics, one very traditional, one a bit more contemporary, because what is happening now in Greece and what was my research was a whole movement of revival of traditional dishes and reinventing Greek food and going back to rural foods and ingredients that were quite neglected, forgotten uh, from the village, coming to Athens, to the big cities and becoming more and more popular. Greek food is very simple, generally speaking, so it has only very few ingredients. The fava, for instance, has onions, the yellow split peas, olive oil, and then some bay leaves, and that's it. And because the ingredients are so few, they need to be of very good quality. So even though in Greece we don't have the movement for organic food and shorter food ways and things that exist, because it's not as industrialized yet, we do pay attention to the vegetables we source, to the fava, where it's coming from, where to buy it from as well. When it comes to cooking techniques, the way that you are taught in the restaurant is to use the chopping board and roughly chop the onion, like this. The way mothers do it is with a smaller knife. So my mom, for instance, would never use a chopping board. I'm very uncomfortable doing this now, but... So, you hold the knife and you just roughly chop the food. And there is, there is a beautiful ethnography by David Sutton which discusses the idea of risk in the kitchen and uses this example of how one chops or doesn't chop. So, because we're going to blend the fava afterwards, it doesn't really matter how you chop the onion as long as it's, you know, roughly chopped. And we're using roughly two onions for 500 grams, which is a, a pound of uh, the split yellow peas. Now, Greek food is a lot about not wasting anything because Greece has been traditionally quite a poor country, so people were very mindful of using up everything. So we use onion scraps to make vegetable stock, or if you have offcuts, now I've cut some onion for to decorate the fava, and these were not really good. To, to make cubes, so I'm going to use them here. And generally it's a cuisine that doesn't let anything go to waste, but also a lot of the traditional dishes, like the pies, have been created from ingredients that people had around. So the pies, for instance, you had flour in your kitchen and some olive oil and some water to make the filo, and then you had greens from the garden or feta cheese from your animals and you would make the spanakopita which is now one of the most popular Greek dishes. So, we're going to gently fry our onions and add the fava in the water and then we're going to let it do its thing. So, as opposed to say like a stew where you pop everything in the oven and then forget about it and come back in a few hours, Greek food needs care, and when I say care, it's uh, it's called meraki. In Greek, it's a word used also for craftsmen. It's caring for the food you're preparing or the furniture you might be crafting, and it is spending time with it. So you must remind me if I forget, we need to stir this every so often. You need to come back to it, smell it, see, is it okay? Is it bubbling? Does it need anything? 
And it's not because it's a high demanding recipe, it's because the more you care for the food, the better it will taste afterwards. So I'm gonna grab some of the olive oil that we've got here. So we need roughly four tablespoons, which I'm going to measure now, but no, that we never measure. Uh, <laughs> so in, like, in restaurants, of course you would. You would use spoons and, and things like that and measuring cups, but in my mom's kitchen, for instance, even baking, there are no measuring cups, there are no measuring spoons. And when, when I first started cooking and bought, because this is what you read, my mom was very surprised, like, what is this? And I'm like, it's a tablespoon. And she's like, we have tablespoons, why not use these? So Greek food is also quite intuitive that way. So you know with your senses how much to put. You can see, you can uh, then smell it and hear the food as it cooks. Keep on. So we've got our onions and olive oil and we've got what I'm hoping is medium-high heat and just let it sizzle for, for a bit. Now the fava, the yellow split peas, we rinse them before that. The water that comes out is uh, quite cloudy so you rinse it and you rinse it and you rinse it until it stops being cloudy. This is to remove any starch that it, it may have, similar to what some of you may do with rice for instance, but we do not soak these. So even though we usually in Greek cuisine love soaking pulses like beans or uh, chickpeas, Fava is not something that we soak overnight. Now this is a dish that is not really eaten in households, so you wouldn't have it at home. You would have it in a taverna, but you will always have it when you go to a taverna. If you didn't catch that, she's talking about tavernas, which are typical casual dining taverna. establishments in Greece. It never appeared in restaurants, especially in upscale restaurants in Athens. Greek cuisine was very understated, so the good restaurants used to be French or Italian. So if you wanted to go out with the family, you would go to an Italian restaurant or to a French restaurant. See, can you hear it? It's making noise. It means it needs something. So. In the mid-2010s, as the crisis was happening, you had many, many Greek chefs who had slowly started reinventing Greek food. And dishes like fava that were associated with the taverna, with the casual eating. Taverna is a very casual sort of uh, establishment where you, would, where you would go and eat by the sea with your family and friends. So dishes like that started becoming part of their menus. A whole new cuisine was created with traditional Greek dishes, but changed. So for instance, in, in a restaurant that I worked, they served the fava with truffle oil. It was difficult to hear that. She said truffle oil. Now, truffle oil is not Greek, it's not part of Greek culture, but it is a luxurious ingredient that gave some sort of different uh, value to this otherwise present uh, dish. So, our onions are now slightly cooked, so we're going to add the fava, give it a stir, and then add the water, bring it to a boil, turn it down, and let it do its thing. And we're going to give it a stir so that it's just coated with a bit of the olive oil and the onions. And see, it quieted down. 
I would be very happy if you do cook the recipe because part of my non-academic job is developing recipes every week for a food company and I have them on their blog. I get no feedback from no one ever. So I'm not really sure if people actually do cook them. And in one of the dinners, uh, a gentleman came and he's like, I made this cake, it was amazing. And I was like, thank you so much. Like I never know if someone makes the, the dishes. We're gonna salt it with some salt and pepper. And here I have no measurements. I know American recipes always use uh, measurements for salt, which is something very unusual for me. And also salt tastes different in Greece and here, uh, which I realized when I tried to make uh, a recipe from an American magazine and it said half a teaspoon of salt. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna follow the recipe to the letter. And it was so much salt. So you salt a bit in the beginning and then you can salt in the end as well if you, and as you go along, you always taste. So we're gonna add the water, a liter and a half of water. Ah, can you hear it? So give it a stir, add the bay leaves. Now bay is something that we really love in Greece. It's a very understated leaf, if you ask me, but it gives a subtle flavor that is amazing. And I like it also to infuse when infusing milk with fava, with lentils. If you're cooking lentils, get some bay leaves, but then make sure to remove it. <laughs> Otherwise, you might blend it with your food, which has happened to me, but it gets very unpleasant. So also remind me. So we're gonna let it start boiling and then we're gonna turn it down. So this is the fava. It cooks like that. And then once the beans absorb the water, we're going to blend it with a handheld blender and then serve it. I'm gonna serve it with two ways and I'm gonna talk more about it afterwards. But the classic way of serving fava so that you all know when you go to a Greek taverna and this is a way to tell if the taverna is like a proper one is with finely chopped raw red onions and capers and of course plenty of olive oil. As the yellow split peas were cooking down, Nafsika guided the guests through an olive oil tasting and shared her thoughts on the best olive oil. The best olive oil because everyone asks whenever I talk about olive oil what is the best olive oil? Ah. It needs to be extra virgin. For us Greeks, we would never use something that is not. And like whiskey or coffee, single blend, which means single variety of olives, is better than a blended uh, olive oil. In Greece, at supermarkets, you would find mostly blended olive oil. So a few varieties of olives crushed together. However, as Greeks, we don't really shop from supermarkets. Everyone knows someone who knows someone who comes from a village or has friends. Are you Greek? Because he's nodding and I'm like, yeah, 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 he knows what I'm talking about. So everyone knows someone who knows someone who comes from a village and has access to olive trees and olive oil. So in my family, for instance, we get olive oil from the village of Koroni, which is in the Peloponnese, beautiful village if you want to go, which is where my godmother is from. So we get it in large 17-liter tins, which we then transfer to these little bottles that we keep on the kitchen countertop. And this way that olive oil travels in 
social networks and outside of commercial shops is very indicative of Greek food and Greek culture. So when you move abroad, when I moved to London, whenever someone visited, they brought a bottle of olive oil with them. Now that I came to visit, I've brought some trachanas to Olga, which is a, a Greek ingredient uh, to use in cooking. It's not that she doesn't have access to these things. Like in London, for instance, you have access to excellent olive oil. But the olive oil from home and the one you grew up with, to answer the, the question, is the best olive oil. And there you have a big debate. North, South, uh, Island olive oil. So we have to stop talking and for you to start tasting. <laughs> Once the fava beans had cooked down and the yellow split peas were fully softened, it was time to finish the dish with a handheld blender. So for me, this is one of the best things ever invented because I did not grow up with it. It came to Greece when I was in my 20s, I think. This is a very forgiving recipe, so it's really difficult to mess it up. If it's on the liquid side, which it is now, you just leave it in the hob for a few minutes, uh, turn it up, liquid evaporates and it becomes to the consistency that you want it. My best friend who is from Estonia, and we live together in London, she had fava as a soup. She thought it was the most exciting thing. So, if you want to leave it in this consistency and have it as a soup, I can tell you it works. Personally, I prefer it as a dip. It's much, much better. And here is a time when you also taste it for salt, for pepper. And But as you're tasting, when you make it, you need to think of the toppings that you will actually add because Capers are quite salty, naturally salty. The onion is quite pungent, so you don't want uh, a fava that's too salty with also the, the toppings. We have two toppings today. The traditional one, capers and raw onions, and something I usually love doing with fava, sun-dried tomatoes and grape molasses. We couldn't find the grape molasses, so we have pomegranate molasses, basically any molasses work. And I like this combination because it's on the sweet side and it's completely different than the classic one. So if you like sweet flavors, go for, uh, for this. If you like, you know, more pungent flavors. Fava is a very versatile dish that's like your vessel for creating whatever you want. You want to do it with truffle oil, do it. You want to serve it with anything you want, basically. And as I said, we usually have it as a dip but if you want to serve it as a main course, of course you, you can. If you want to turn it into a soup, you can. And as my friend in Athens says, it's always very comforting to have a big pot of fava in the fridge. When you blend the fava, there are two schools of thought. You blend it as smooth as possible and pass it through a sieve so that it's smooth as yogurt, say and people feel really strongly about it, that the good fava is the seed fava. I don't belong in that school of thought, so I like a bit of texture, so you will see it's not smooth. If it's served in a restaurant, it's usually always we pass it through a sieve, so you would never serve it as is like that. But if you're at home, 
or amongst friends, you can do whatever you want. So when you make the fava, you can think of these things. And I think fava, unlike other dishes, is very much, um, it's not a, it's a love thing. Everyone loves fava. I do not really know why. I think it's because it's so comforting. But I have not to this day encountered a fava hater. So <laughs> really, this dish is one of the most versatile dishes because the flavor is so subtle and you can do whatever you want with it. So get creative. Now, pomegranate molasses, sadly, we didn't have grape molasses. Grape molasses is made from grapes. It's very popular in Turkish cooking, now becoming a bit more popular in Greece as part of the revival of tradition of Greek food, petimezi, for the Greek ones. Back in the day, you would have it over bread, so you would have toast with some grape molasses. And generally we use it as a sweetener over porridge in the morning, like in tea, in tomato-based dishes and over fava. And of course, we need plenty of olive oil. So, and you use a lot of olive oil, you will see. There's plenty of olive oil, but it is a dish that really loves olive oil, so. That was Nafsika Papacharalampus, food anthropologist and chef, cooking fava, a Greek yellow split pea dip in a cooking demo at Indiana University. Find the recipe at eartheats.org. After a short break, we'll join Nafsika and geographer Olga Kalanzidou for a conversation in our studio. Stay with us. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Kate Young. This is Earth Eats, and my guests today are Nafsika Papakaralampus and Olga Kalanzidou. Olga partnered with the Institute for European Studies, IU Department of Geography, IU Department of Anthropology, and the College of Arts and Sciences, the Mester, to bring Nafsika to campus. In addition to the cooking demonstration in the Reed Teaching Kitchen, which we just heard part of before the break, Nafsika also visited one of Olga's classes, and she gave a talk in partnership with the IU Food Institute. I started our conversation asking about the talk. So your talk has a really provocative title. It's, it's like a quote, and it says, it smells like the village. I don't want the village in my home. Could you talk about that quote and how that, why you chose that for your title for your talk? When I was in London as a student, I had brought back from Greece a bag of trahana, which is uh, an ingredient made with milk, uh, fermented milk and wheat, and it has a very distinctive smell. And I had brought it back as a gift to one of my friends. And when I gave it to him, and he comes from rural Greece, he said, no, I do not want that. It smells like the village, and I don't want the village in my home. So I thought this was a very powerful quote and used it in my own uh, thesis and then later book and now in the presentation uh, because it conveys the feelings, uh, the conflicting feelings towards the Greek countryside that many Greeks share. So the idea of the choryo, the village, is both a source of pride and common identity, but also there was a need to feel European and become more urban and more modern. And these two images sort of clashed. 
Uh, so in the talk, I explain this and how historically this, uh, di- these dynamics were developed and how with the crisis, uh, the financial crisis that happened in the mid-2010s, the idea of the village and of Greek rurality became a remedy for the crisis. And people went back to the comfort of the village and the memories uh, of the past that the village evoked. Well, I guess that's a good lead into talking more about your research and about what your thesis was about. It, it's a book as well? Yes, it's now going to be published next year. In anthropology, traditionally, after we complete our field research and we write up the thesis, you publish uh, what we call a monograph, which is a book based on on that research Mm -hmm. and the analysis afterwards. My research was in Athens in the mid-2010s, at a time, at a very turbulent time, when the Greek crisis, the financial crisis was unfolding. It was also a social crisis. And I spent time in upscale delis and in fine dining restaurants as a a cook and then later on as a chef and researched the um, phenomenon of change that was happening at the time in Greek cuisine where you had rural foods and traditional dishes coming from the countryside to the uh, to Athens and to the big cities and being reinvented and revalued. How does that phenomenon relate to the the financial crisis? Like, how does it come from that? Or It was very interesting that the two were happening at the same time because the one was feeding into the other. And what I saw was that all these rural foods and, and traditional recipes that appeared reinvented to Athenians, they carried a nostalgia and, and became a source of comfort. And also rural values like eating together and sharing food created networks that held people together and provide them a support system during the crisis. And then once the crisis ended or got better, I mean, I know it probably wasn't a, you know, now it's over. <laughs> but did those trends continue or that or, you know, how, how were the foodways changed or did thing, was there a normalization afterwards? Things changed and keep changing in cuisine, especially in Athens, because we see a reconnection of foodways. But as opposed to other European cities or the U.S., this is culturally very meaningful because uh, the rural and the urban were never really disconnected in Greece. So now you have open-air markets, you have no middlemen markets, uh, you have spaces where foods come to Athens, a shorter farm, farm-to-table chain, and also a huge revival in the restaurant scene. You have now Michelin star restaurants in many Greek fine dining restaurants. And I think Greek food is flourishing and people got inspired from the crisis and the the crisis that kept unfolding as well. And saw this as an opportunity to create, create food businesses, to create new ways of eating, of sharing food. Is there still a really strong agrarian and agricultural life there or has there been a large movement of, you know, migration to the cities or, you know, like here in in the Midwest, rural life has changed a lot. (laughs) And is there a similar kind of dynamic going on in, in Greece? It has changed a lot in Greece as well. In the 50s and the 60s, you had a huge movement of urbanization which really changed both the cities and the countryside. 
now with the financial crisis, you had some counter-urbanization movements of people going back to their home villages and creating small food businesses working on the land. But in no way did it became so big so as to completely reverse the the movement. Uh, Greece is quite urbanized, but there is still a cultural association with uh, the countryside. So, for instance, uh, even though people may live in Athens, they would go back to their home village to vote when we have elections, or they would they might get married there. So there is um, there is still a connection, but the the working on the land and practices that have to do with caring for the land, fishing, and all of that, this has changed quite a lot over the last few decades. Yes. And so, when people are going back to the countryside to maybe start some food businesses? Is it more of a artisanal cheese-making kind of thing or a gourmet, <laughs> you know, high-end food project or it, as opposed to sort of a traditional, a more traditional kind of farming practice? I think it's uh, it's both and people work with the land in different ways and and spend time in the land in different ways. So... And this is not part of my own research uh, because I didn't visit much the countryside. But from stories you hear, like you have uh, people who go and just want a simpler life, to be more autonomous, to to have uh, their olive oil from the olive trees and all of that. You have people who were entrepreneurs in Athens, who worked in marketing, who worked in advertising, and then they went back, uh, discovered that the land has things to offer and created artisan high-end products that were quite interesting as well in terms of flavor, in terms of technique, also in terms of aesthetics and the way these were promoted. And you were saying that a lot of people even in the urban centers are connected to their home regions. And I felt like you touched on that in the food demonstration when you were talking about olive oil and the ways in which people feel passionate about their the <laughs> olive oil from their region. Could you talk about that a little bit? Olive oil, we're very passionate as Greeks. We're very passionate about olive oil. There is a sense of pride that comes with coming from a specific region or even a specific village or town or city in the Greek countryside. And olive oil is an excellent example to explore this because you have different types of uh, olives grown all around Greece, different types of olive oil is being produced with very distinct flavors and smells. And each person, I think, is very much passionate about the olive oil they grew up tasting and, and, and smelling. When you exchange olive oils, like now in the demo, I've brought some olive oil from the southern part, from Koroni in the Peloponnese, and Olga had some olive oil from other regions. And tasting the differences, you can actually see the passion that exists there. And what is the olive oil that you're most connected with? My my family comes from Athens, so sadly there was no immediate connection to, to the countryside. And this is why it's so fascinating for me as a research topic. But we used to spend all of our summers in my godmother's house in Peloponnese, in the village of Koroni, which is a tiny seaside village, producing amazing olive oil, though. 
So every year they would send us large tins with this olive oil and it was the olive oil that we would use throughout the year to the point where when I moved to London to do my PhD and become an anthropologist, my parents would visit, my sister would visit, they would bring olive oil there. So it's been with me throughout my entire life and for me it has a sense of warmth that I do not find in other commercially sold olive oil. Mm-hmm. It tastes wrong. <laughs> and Olga, you have a different um, olive oil that you're I partial to? I do, I do. Although I have to say the Koroneiki, that's what we call it, the Koroni olives are really producing a very thick, very fruity and really distinctive olive oil. But in my area, the climate is very different. Again, olives cannot grow past a certain kilometer distance from the coastline. So most of us where my family lives, we're using either the local variety or a variety which is called Kiklopas, and I bring it every year here. I'm the crazy person with uh, the suitcases full of olive oil. And also a variety from the island, the northern island of Mytilini or Lesbos, and you might, uh, your listeners might know that from the refugee crisis in that region. And the Mytilini or the Limnos olive oil, another island close to us, is because many people from my city, coastal city in the north of uh, Greece, have connections to it. So you always try to find a family or a local olive oil press and get the olive oil from them. It is quicker and it is, you know where your olive oil comes from. That's IU Geography professor Olga Kalanzidou in conversation with anthropologist and chef Nafsika Papakar-Lampos. More after a short break. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. I'm talking with geographer Olga Kalanzidou and chef and anthropologist Nafsika Papakar-Lampos. The more interviews I do, the more I come to understand that most people do not have lives or careers that follow a straight path. Many of us try something, then veer off in a different direction, then accidentally fall into another field, maybe pursue a passion or a lucky break. In other words, things change. This seems especially true in the world of food. Nafsika, could you tell us the story of how you got into food, either into (laughs) cooking or into food anthropology? Maybe start with cooking, because I think that was first. I studied finance just after graduating high school. I went to a business school in Athens. I studied finance. I did an MBA. I started working in finance as an analyst. And then I turned 30 and realized that I wasn't fulfilled in my daily life. That was before the crisis, so the job was good. The hours were good. My colleagues were very good. I just wasn't passionate about it. And I thought, there's no way I can spend so many years working with something that I'm not passionate about. And at the time, I loved food. I loved eating food. I cooked, but not professionally. And I couldn't conceive anything that I could do that I could make money of and support myself. 
that had to do with food. But I started looking, you know, what is out there. And I discovered the master's in the anthropology of food that uh, was at SOAS, uh, the School of Oriental and African Studies in at the University of London. And I ordered a book that talked about anthropology of food because I had no idea what it was. And it was fascinating. It was like a whole world opened up of new ideas and ways to experience food. So I gathered my savings and moved to London and did the MA. And then I continued on to the PhD and started my research in, in Greek food. And the cooking happened returning to Athens for my field work, for my research. I needed a job. I also really wanted to learn how to cook professionally and work in a professional kitchen. So I went in one of the chefs that I had interviewed for, for my research and asked to be tried out for free. I said, you know, try me out for as long as you want. You don't have to pay me. And if I'm good enough, you can hire me. If not, that's okay. Because all of the other cooks had attended very prestigious culinary schools, which I hadn't. So I went and did my trial shifts for, I think it was a couple of weeks. And then I got hired as, a, as an apprentice cook in the beginning. And it was, uh, it was magical when it happened because the, the restaurant kitchen is a very unique environment. And I included some of that in my ethnography. But this is how my, this is, this is what my first experience was with professional cooking. And then I went on to do pop-up dinners and catering and do more things around food, develop recipes. But this is how it all started. Wow, that's fascinating. What was that like when that, in that trial period? It was very intense physically. It was physically very demanding, like my whole body hurt. And it was emotionally very demanding as well because it's a high-pressured environment. You need to be on your feet and you need to be aware of things happening. It's very fast-paced as well. And everything matters. So you need to, every plate that you put down, you know that it goes to someone who will have this experience only once. So it doesn't matter if you make... 10, 20, 50 salads on a shift, each salad is going to be important for someone. And this is uh, this puts quite a lot of pressure, especially when we talk about fine dining, high-end restaurants. But at the end of each shift, we all of us cooks gathered together and had a beer. And there was a sense of accomplishment that I hadn't experienced in academia or in my previous life in finance. The day ends, you've plated some food, you, you've uh, created something, and then you sit all together and celebrate that, which for me was very unique. Yeah, so even though it was high pressured, you still found it appealing and, and satisfying. At the time, I did debate staying and becoming a chef and working on that exclusively, but my concern was the body and how it would react in 10, 20 years. But I must say, it's not an easy life. It's quite underpaid. You work very long hours. We work 12 to even 16 hours a day, six days a week. And I think it takes quite a lot of inner strength to become a cook mm. and later on a, a chef. And I think here in the United States anyway, I feel like there has been a some have called it a reckoning. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but a new awareness of what the 
restaurant environment is like. And because so many restaurants were closed and many went out of business and, you know, there was just this whole community of people who were suddenly out of work and struggling. And I feel like there has been a new awareness and a new valuing of that work. I don't know if that's going to last or what real changes have happened. But has anything similar to that happened in Greece, in the restaurant industry? I think generally the restaurant industry has a long way to go. uh, And it is becoming more visible now. Injustices in the kitchen that have to do with gender, for instance, or race. The long hours, uh, the working conditions, and many, many things that are, may I say, yes, sometimes inhumane. In Greece, there is this awareness and it's becoming more visible now. And there have been changes also because you have younger chefs taking over restaurants. And there is a new culture that is Mm. uh, beginning to, to take place. But I think it is important that those of us who go to restaurants and taste the amazing foods, that we are aware of what's happening in the kitchen. Because often you don't want to know But uh, it is a hard life. It's very creative. There's a lot of camaraderie between the cooks. I did not experience any competition in the kitchen. I know it's not the same in all kitchens, but we all helped each other, supported each other. So it's it's quite a unique environment. Mm -hmm. And you said the restaurant you were working in was a high-end fine dining. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I personally loved it, the job because I was at a place in my life where I needed the structure that the kitchen provided and to get lost in, in that world and in creating food and being part of, of this community of uh, chefs. But uh, we shouldn't romanticize it because there are TV shows with chefs and and uh, the way food is presented in the media is often very different than the actual lives of, of those who work in the food industry. And the food I- industry is not only fine dining. It's many, many different people working in many different types of uh, places that create food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's an important reminder. <laughs> and And that your motivations were different than maybe some who end up in that industry. Yeah, that makes sense. The majority of Greeks, especially in provincial towns that are not so much touristy, are really drawn to family businesses, the taverns, in which the mother or grandmother or the wife of the proprietor actually cooks and the front end is the males of the family more or less serving people. So we need to keep that distinction in mind because for American audiences, that translates into the so-called ethnic cuisines in the U.S. So in a sense, the small hole-in-the-walls restaurants in the U.S. resemble those kind of taverns that are very comfortable to a lot of us and we have our favorite place to go and hang out and uh, have food as we would have at home. We, we should keep that distinction separate, and I want to hear more about that if you want. No, this would make for a fascinating research project for me, especially focusing on women in the kitchen and cooking, because in Greece, as well as in many other parts of the world, uh, the chef is usually a man. You do have many women working in kitchens, and the tavernas are quite unique that way. Also, for me, the places that make souvlaki, 
which are more towards mm-hmm. fast food. So there are many different types of restaurants in Greece and the ethnographic exploration there would yield, I think, fascinating uh, results. Mm-hmm. What is uh, Slovaki? Slovaki, Olga, you Slovaki is the skewered meat, basically. You have it as kebabs in the United States, but kebab is very different. So in the United States, Greek cuisine has always been misunderstood as pan-Mediterranean or in that context. And when I teach Greek cuisine, I have to really deconstruct that myth that what you think is offered to you in in Greek places is not what we actually eat at home. There are many variations of the food. As it was time to wrap up, I offered Olga the last question for Nafsika. I just want to know where are you going next? What would you like to do next in terms of Greek food and your particular emphasis in the metropolitan area? I realized that my journey of becoming a food anthropologist and creating the thesis and now creating the book has been quite transformative in the way that for the first time I found belonging amongst people who shared the same passion about food in my daily work, working with food and writing about food, researching, teaching, uh, cooking. I do not have a specific answer on what specific project I will uh, be working on in the future, but I know that I am in the right place. And this for me, because it took a while to discover, uh, is the most important thing. So we'll see. Definitely it will be something that has to do with food. That was Nafsika Papakar Lampus. She's a chef and a food anthropologist affiliated with the SOAS Food Studies Center at University of London. She was in conversation with IU geographer Olga Kalanzidou, who invited Nafsika to the IU campus in partnership with the Institute for European Studies, IU Department of Geography, IU Department of Anthropology, the IU Food Institute, and the College of Arts and Sciences Master. Find the recipe Nafsika shared and more at eartheats.org. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Daniela Richardson, Samantha Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Harvest Public Media. The show is produced and edited by me, Kate Young. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Thank you.